is the Throstle Club with Norman Bartlam and Bob Downing. Hello and welcome to the third edition of the Throstle Club. It's the programme all about the long and fabulous history of West Bromwich Albion. It's where we take a look back at events from days gone by with a particular emphasis on this month in history. So obviously we're into July. Now alongside me is a very knowledgeable man whose form rate you could say is always excellent. It's the former sports Argus man Bob Downing. Hello Norman. Good to see you again, Bob. And sitting in the corner, pressing his buttons to keep us on air, is Black Country Radio's Billy Spakeman. I mean, footballer himself in days gone by, apparently, Billy. Well, so some people tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now now we're excited today, apparently, because we've got a special studio guest, none other than a man who has been called Mr Albion, and many other things besides, (laughs) but, uh, but we don't need to go into that. It's none other than John Homer. What out, everybody, especially all my pals in Quarrybonk. So there you go now. Our key interview today is with a former player who came through the Albion ranks from schoolboy to a first-teamer, but his career was nearly ended when he had a kidney removed. Now there's a clue as to who it is, did you reckon? Yeah, that's uh, that's Lyndon Hughes, Norman. Could only be Lyndon the Hughes, couldn't only. it? Yeah, one of the Smedic's finest gentlemen. And after the recent England game in Malta, we'll be looking at the links between that country and the Albion. Now, shall I give you a little Malta teaser? No, no, no. no. No, Okay then, welcome to the Throstle Club. sound there of the, of the West Brom choir from the Brummy Road. Now then, uh, let's get straight into our former player interviewer, Lyndon Hughes, and Bob and myself, we went down to visit Lyndon uh, early last week. He was at the Albion from the uh, mid-60s right the way through to about 1975, and it was quite an interesting visit, wasn't it, Bob? Yes, it certainly was. Um, he's not, he's not, he don't get out very often there because of you know certain problems he's got, but... Uh, his mind is still really active, and he's remembered so much about the Albion and and his own career. Yeah. Um, I think he, can I just interrupt? Did he uh, remember upending me at Smithwick Park on a Sunday afternoon? He said there was a little. He, he always remembers a little kid. He said who was always snapping at his ankles. So, <laughs> so I thought I'd give you give him that one to him. remember. Give him to one to remember me, boy. Um, yeah, yeah. Animosity <laughs> was watching from the sidelines. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> all, all, all big kids though weren't up to the same standard as Smedic. So now, Lyndon talked about Holly Lodge, which is a school he went to, and also his junior school in his early career for the Albion. And uh, this is his reminiscences, reminiscences, reminiscences. of uh, his early days. Uh, Schoolboy career, I, I first went to school, primary school at St Hubert's, uh, the big Catholic church on the Wolverhampton Road. And uh, my first time was at football, would I play for Albury under 11s. Mm-hmm. I think I scored a goal as well in that first yeah. game my dad came to watch me. Yeah, St Hubert's, for those people that don't know, it's that big church with a big white cross painted on it, isn't it, on the Wolverhampton Road? Just up from the Wally Bubble, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, and you used to be uh, in the choir there as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yes, sing, sing a few songs there. 
Excellent. A few hymns, I should say. When you went on then into secondary school, it was Holly Lodge? Holly Lodge, yeah. My, my three, my two brothers, and my two older brothers and my younger brother also went to Holly Lodge. So we had quite a family there all at once, really. Mm-hmm. Was there anybody in particular that picked you out to, to be a potential footballer? I had two really good sports teachers, uh, Eric Quance and um, Malcolm Burgess. Fantastic sports teachers, renowned really in, in the Midlands. And they were very good. They helped me a lot. Um, in fact, Eric once he wanted me to uh, be an athlete rather than a footballer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but uh, he insisted I run in. I was a champion sprinter for, for uh, Birmingham schools. Uh, but he wanted me to run cross-country as well. <laughs> you preferred the football. I did, yeah. And he, uh, in fact, he made me run cross-country for the school four miles before I made my debut with West Brom's third team. Oh, God. In the afternoon, so I was against the men and against people that in those days, the third team used to have ex um, players, first team players that were recovering from injury. They used to play in the third team mm. on the way back. And so you had first team players there. And I was a 15 year old schoolboy who'd run four miles across country in the morning before making my debut against seasoned professionals. So thank you, Eric. And there's a, a cut-in in the Sports Argus from November 1965, and it says, Call him Six Hit Hughes. It says, That was the fantastic feat of Lyndon Hughes, who netted all the goals in Smuddick's 6-2 whipping of Hereford in the English School's Trophy Round 3. That must have been a great occasion for you. <laughs> it was, yeah. Especially being at Hadley Plainfields with a proper stadium. Well, it's only a small stadium, a proper stadium. It was great to score six goals. I think I scored three with my left foot. I think I remember that. Uh-huh. And three. And no head. I normally scored my goals with my head. But uh, I scored three with my left and three with my right, I think, if I remember right. When you were playing schoolboy football, and you were so, you know, obviously so good, um, were you aware of any scouts that were coming after you or, or looking at you? Yeah, I'm very much aware. But uh, I'd signed for West Brom when I was 12. Uh, so that tended to put a lot of the other scouts off in those days. You wouldn't put them off these days. <laughs> but in those days, you used to put people off. I turned associate schoolboy forms with us from when I was 12. So that was mm. very much it, really. All those scouts did still come. I went to Tottenham uh, to have a look round. All those were West Brom schoolboy, but Tottenham were very persistent, the most persistent club after me. And Bill Nicholson was very persuasive. He said he wanted me to see me play. He wanted me. And my dad and that you know Bob mm-hmm. uh, went down to Tottenham and had spent the day with Bill Nicholson watching a first team game and touring the stadium, and he made my dad a good offer. That I don't know what it was. Yeah. But I was already signed for West Brom. I wanted to go to West Brom anyway because all my friends were there, so I went to West Brom. Right. Brilliant. So, who was there at the time then? Any names that we would know today? At Tottenham. At, uh, no, at uh, West Brom when you signed for them. When I signed, uh, well, funny enough, I used to. Um, my brother was a West Brom supporter. He used to take me to West Brom as a, as a, every Saturday, and my dad used to take me to Villa Park every every other Saturday. And uh, so I, I was brought up really with uh, West Midlands football. Um, but I used to watch. My favourite watch was Derek Kevin. And then from Derek Kevin came Jeff Astle and John Kay. So I watched them as a schoolboy. And then to answer your question, uh, when I signed for West Brom, they were still there in the prime. In fact, we won the Cup in 1968. 
Just tell us a little bit about when you were an apprentice and what you, you did sort of day to day, because that was back in the day, of course, when players' boots were cleaned by the apprentices and the likes, wasn't it? Well, as an apprentice, we, we used to report to a guy called Dave Matthews, and uh, West Brom fans and players all know Dave Matthews. He was there for a long, long time. I think he passed away several years ago. Mm. Uh, and we used to, as an apprentice, we used to report to Dave, and he used to give us the boots to clean. And he used to take us to the Hawthorns and give us the paint and brushes to paint the, the metal railings that surround the Hawthorns and also the crush barriers. We used to have to paint in, in close season. And uh, we should, they don't do it these days. I don't believe they do that. No. And you, you, ne- you never objected to because it was just the done thing, wasn't it, I suppose? It's done, yeah. Ever since the, the people, the apprentices had done that work than the maintenance of the ground. We also seeded the pitch and watered the pitch, cut the grass even. Yeah. Or helped to mm. well, then cut the grass. We cleared the uh, cuttings away, mm. that sort of thing. Yeah. We, we, the maintenance of the ground was down to the apprentices, Dave Matthews and the Grantsman. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. What about your training? There was a character called Jimmy Dunn, I think, wasn't there? Jimmy Dunn, yeah, he was a great fellow, Jimmy Dunn. Uh, scouser, uh, ex-publican. He came as a trainer, he came, gave up the pub work and came back as a trainer, and he was a fantastic character. He used to call me Yozza, Yozza Hughes. <laughs> and, uh, that's from the boys from the black stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. And uh, he was a great guy, Jimmy Dunn. Yeah, some uh, interesting stuff there for Lyndon Hughes about his early career. And he mentioned Jimmy Dunn, the trainer, and he was quite well liked, I think, wasn't he, John? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was involved with the uh, with Lyndon and the nineteen sixty nine FA Youth Cup squad, wasn't he? And he was a trainer there, and he graduated the first team trainer eventually. He he won an FA Cup winners medal with the Wolves in nineteen forty nine. His father played for Everton and won the league championship for Everton as well. So he was a real good footballing stock. And I know he was a very influential character to a lot of the lads like Ali Robertson and Ace Hartford, Lynn Cantello, Lyndon himself and Jim Alton, of course. That was that was a, a pearl of a side uh, coached by a, a, a great a great youth team coach, I think. Yeah, but brilliant, yeah. I didn't know much about him until today. That, that, that was great. Now, yourself, of course, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you, how you became an Albion supporter and what it means supporting the Albion. Well, like everybody else, my dad was a big Albion fan. I was born in Quaddybonk on the 16th of March, 1955. On that day, the Albion beat the Wolves 1-0, so that was a great day to be born. George Lee got the goal, and for a long, long time, I pestered my dad to take me up the Albion, and he finally caved in 11th of February, 1967. Took me up to the match. Um, we went with his pal, a bloke called Joe Dunn, and, and his son, Geoffrey, in an old A40. He parked up Alfred's Lane, and then... The magic hit me when you're walking up the road and you see the floodlights and the hustle and the bustle and the crowd. Uh, we played Sheffield United, uh, but lost 2-1, sadly. Bobby Cram got the Albion goal from a free kick right in front of us at the Smethwick end. And after that, I was hooked, of course. So it's 50, 56 years now, isn't it? Something like that. Now, I know you were devastated by the restrictions with COVID because it damaged the record, didn't it? Absolutely. I think I'd missed uh, six home games from 1969 up until COVID. And when the, the first live game they put on stream, which was the Blues, a boring nil-nil draw, that was the first time ever I'd watched the Albion live at home on the telly because I'd always been there. 
So that was a really weird... I couldn't take it, really, because you miss all the preamble and the, the atmosphere of the crowd. And, and being there uh, is the important thing, isn't it, really? Of course it is, yeah. So it was, it was gutting, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. I, I saw the look on your face when you... Each time you tell that story, you still look so sad even now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there's a few other fans as well have got records oh, yeah, similar yeah. to yours. Yeah. But... Uh, but they they must have had exactly the same kind of feelings. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I've missed about two up until COVID. I'd missed about two away games in the last thirty years because I did go away. Then I had, we had kids, and then obviously the family takes a little bit of precedence. I say a little oh, bit, just, <laughs> just a little. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's shot here, but and um, yeah. So, but I resumed going away and. And that's been that, you know, and, and I work at the club, but I buy my season ticket and I'm immersed in it and everybody will tell you I'm an Albion nut. And I'm I'm so proud of the institution and the fact that it's a black country team. We're not Billy Big Boots. We know where we are in the great scheme of things. And I think that's part of the magic of being an Albion fan. We don't win much, but so what? Yeah, it's been part of it in the comradeship of being with like-minded fans. Absolutely. Like you, it? it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a faith, isn't it, really? Yeah. Now, you've got a bit of a poem, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, I wrote this when my dad died in 1998. Uh, he still comes with me to every game, though. So uh, there you are. Uh, and this, I just got up, woke up one morning after he died and, and the first line come into me head. And this is my little tribute to my father and I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people uh, about going up the match. If I had a wish, I'd wish that I were a lad walking up Alfred's Lane, holding hands with me dad. It's another cold Saturday at 20 to 3, but the cold don't matter when it's my dad with me. Weaving past boys and hard-working chaps, with mufflers and scarves and rattles and caps. Then in through the turnstile with a beam on me face, and onto the smeddick end, me and me dad in our usual place. Then the smell of the pipe smoke pervading the air, the banter, the chatter, there's noise everywhere. Me dad sees a mate and he shouts out, Oi, oi! Then the teams reach the field and up comes the cry. Play up the baggies, I yell and I shout. But Dad says, hold up or your voice will get out. The match is fantastic. We sing and we cheer. And I tell me, Dad, I'm glad that we're here. At the end of the match, I chant and I sing. Brown scored the winner, but Astle's the king. Holding on to me programme, we race home for tea. By a November fireside with Mum, Dad and me. Now, wishes are pipe dreams, but I really don't care. Because all of this happened, I know I was there. I'm grateful it did, because there'll always be... Memories of match days, Astle the King, and my dad and me. Very good, John. Very Mar good. Marvellous, brilliant. And we'll have more from you, John, later in the programme. And more about Lyndon Hughes as well, uh, coming up later on the Thwassel Club. But now the moment you've all been waiting for, especially you, Billy, it's the quiz of the month. Oh, my oh God. God. Okay. Not the now month, you know. Not the month of the quiz, then. <laughs> not the month of the quiz. It's the quiz of the now, month. Now, we right. discover you come in. There's cakes going on the prize here. Is there any cakes going out here? <laughs> no, right, you've got the difficult job of keeping the score here, okay. Billy. You've got your boy Rose there, oh. ready. I thought, he, I thought ready it was... Ready now, I thought you you it, know, I, well, Bill, if I get one right, it's three points. <laughs> okay. I thought it was cake, Bill, not cake. Here we go. Right, here we go. So, is this happen to everybody? Open to you. No, two. you too. Over, oh. over to you two. You too. Yeah. Oh, right. Forget Pop Ken Bruce off Radio <laughs> Two, mate. This is a proper, <laughs> proper <laughs> jobby. Proper quiz. None, none of that. Proper none quiz. Of that kind of stuff. Okay. Right, all about things related to the Albion in this particular month in God history. Man. So, ten, que ten questions. Ten questions. Yep. Yeah. So here we go. So shout out the answers. You ready there, Bill? Yeah. Okay. Number one then. 
who stepped down as the Albion club secretary become manager, really, in July 1948. Fred Everest. Fred Everest. Fred, ooh. ooh, I think that was a toy, do you reckon? Yeah, pointage, we gave him a pointage. Yeah, yeah. uh, number two, in July 2003, so that's 20 years ago this month, <sighs> Albion signed James O'Connor from Stoke. And who else did we sign at who the same else? time from crew? Uh, Brit, uh, Rob Hulse. Rob Hulse. Oh, yeah. Good, oh. Rob Hulse. Uh, number three, in July 2004, Gary Megson signed somebody from Birmingham City. Uh, from Birmingham Ooh. City. Not Darren Carter? No, you got the first name, right? Darren, Darren Ferguson. Darren Purse. Darren Purse. Oh, oh I John. think Bob coming. <laughs> oh, I think Bob coming. Oh, right. Prompted, oh. but Bob uh, coming there. Uh, well, he opened his purse just in time. For the, <laughs> but it, he Darren Purse. Don't give him any clues, John. Yeah, <laughs> no. He opened his purse because he thought there was going to be some change in the yeah. weather. Oh, oh I don't like these modern questions. Don't ever go on the live at the Apollo. <laughs> no. uh, number four, on July 74, Jeff Astle left the Albion to... John Dunstable. 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 Seven. Boozy, you see. Goes in what this comes. No, never mind. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, number seven, in July 2021, Alex Mowat signed from Barnsley, becoming the first signing of which new head he, he's coach? Mal- Mal- Bob. Bob. Just, yeah. Bob's just in. Eight, which Albion manager was sacked in July 99? Dennis Smith. Dennis Smith. Oh, is this the last question uh, now? This is nine, number nine. Five, oh, no. In July 20... You're getting too excited here, Bill. I know, it's right. getting close. This <laughs> is not how to chat for him yet. <laughs> in July 2014, Albion broke their transfer, their transfer record, paying nine million quid for which Nigerian flop? A J. Ka- Brownie J. Brownie J. Brownie J. Yeah, and number ten... Who got that then, no? Cause it, him. Oh, John got that one. Oh, John got that one. You give me the... One, two, three. You've got to get this in because you get three I'll for this. Get, <laughs> you get three for this. And I do. He does, show down. Sorry. And n- number 10, in July 2019, which Nigerian international signed for... Semi AG. Semi AG. Oh, oh, three, three points. points. Three oh, points. Oh, well done. Three, oh, four, man. five, six. <laughs> Seven against six. Oh, Bob wins. <laughs> Well done, Bob. I actually beat the Oracle. <laughs> Quick fire. <laughs> There we go. I had to get up early. My brain ain't starting. Now, Semi AJ, his full name, he's got 27 letters in his name. Good grief. And I think he's the, se- the What's second. What's that? Semi Alphabet AJ. Oh, no, uh, it's 26 yeah. letters in Alphabet <laughs> And uh, there is another player, though, we've had in recent years, who's got 46 letters in his name. Well, Wall Stevens, was it, to become crazy wicky wicky? Hang on, don't. <coughs> in recent years. Yeah. Not 46 Not Carnu. Not Carnu. No. What nationality is he then? Uh, can't remember what it was, actually. We knew him as Tosin. I did. Yeah, right, he, go on then. I got a bonus point if you can pronounce his name. There it is. <laughs> 
Bonus point for a draw. Here he comes, John. Abdul Nasir, Allah Watson, Allah Windy Salami, Adarabayo. What do you reckon? Mm, that's about right. Oh, it's yeah. about right. I'll give it to you. Okay. Right. Toy then. We'll toy. We'll toy the competition. <laughs> <laughs> toys. But, but there's even more. There's a time there was one player who got 57 letters in his this name. This is Trevis, isn't it? Yes, Boss got Gary it. John's got Trevis. it. Yeah. 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 Arthur Stanley Sackville Redvers Trevor Bosco and Griffith Trevis. He got 57 letters in was his he name. Welsh? And uh, he was oh. there until the till 1936 yeah. at the old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The christening uh, hey. took three hours. I used a lot of waiter on his shirt. It was interesting what you were saying. You know, about what Lyndon was talking about Jimmy Dunn, and he told us a, a really funny story. He was training, Lyndon was, and Jimmy Dunn was, you know, obviously the first team trainer. And he called Lyndon over, and he says, "Lyndon, oh no, Yosa." He called him as I said, "Yosa." He said, "What?" He said, uh, "Dave Bowen's just been on the phone. You've been picked oh, for yeah. oh, you've been picked for Wales under twenty three. Yeah. And he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "He picked you for. He said you can play for the Welsh under twenty three. He said, "Of course, I'm English." Mm-hmm. He said, "Oh, Captain England Youth. Yeah. How can I play for Wales?" And Dave Bowen thought, with a name like Hughes. Lyndon Hughes, he'd got to yeah. be Welsh. We've got to be Welsh, <laughs> yeah, <bloody hell. coughs> yeah. So uh, some inter- interesting names cropping up there. In the quiz, and also the what the Watney Cup that was interesting, wasn't it? The new rules fell offside that they trialed, yeah. That, it was they? level with the uh, penalty area, wasn't it? And it was for the top scoring teams in each division that didn't qualify for Europe or weren't promoted. So we played Wrexham in the we'd bound to, we were about to get into it then, weren't we? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> funnily enough, funnily enough, um, the following season when Don Howe was appointed for the first time in our history. We failed to score 50 league goals in a season. You know that? Oh, yeah. right. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And the Watney Cup, we played at Wrexham Racecourse Ground, which was a, a venue we didn't visit very often. And then we <coughs> played Halifax at the Shea, which was our first visit there. Yeah. And yep. then Colchester in the final, we were captained by our old player, Bobby Cramp. That's right. And we also oh. then we signed their goalkeeper then, didn't we? Graham Smith. Graham Smith. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, the, there was a chap who scored a penalty for them, a lad called Phil Bloss. We took him on trial, but that didn't work out. But uh, Don mm. always written Graham Smith was his worst signing. No. Well, he just signed him on, on that one game, really, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And we'll talk more about the Watney Cup. Uh, Next month, because the final, that big Colchester game, was uh, in, in August. August. So we'll talk a bit more about that. Now, another, another little Albion player that was born in uh, July was Jim Sanders, which is the goalkeeper. He played in the 54 final, didn't he? You, yeah. You must have yeah. met him a few times. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a smashing bloke. He always carried his cup winner's medal <clears throat> on a chain around yeah. his neck, wherever he went. Yeah. He even went to sleep in it. He would not part with it. And, of course, it was a career that was resurrected, wasn't it, because he was injured while he was serving so with the RAF. In, in the war. Now, funny you should say that, because we actually got a clip. Uh, a good Stato friend of mine, Colin McKenzie, has got some good memories of uh, Jim Sanders. And this is what he told me about uh, his memories of Jim earlier. Jim Sanders he'd got an interesting war record as well, hadn't he? In, in a way, uh, that was... Part of how it affected his game when he got back after the war, wasn't yeah, it? That's right. Uh, Jim served with the RAF uh, and was shot in the back twice. And um, 
he always received a disability pension for all the years he played football at the Albion. <laughs> so technically speaking, we had a crippled goalkeeper <laughs> for about eight years. <laughs> but no, no, he, he was a, a great bloke who went on to keep um, a pub uh, in Perry Bar called the, the the New Crown and Cushing on the corner of right, uh, right. Aston Lane and Perry Bar. Oh, right. And you could always pop in and have a, have a drink with Jim. Yeah, he was, he was a good guy. And the fact was... He was so proud of playing for the Albion and so proud that he won the cup that he never took his medal off. People didn't always realise that. And later life, his war injuries caught up with him and he used to come to the games in a wheelchair, pushed by his great mate, Derek Kevin. But if you recognised him and asked to see the cup final medal, I always used to say his shirt was off faster than Superman yeah, in a yeah, phone box because yes. he was so proud to show you that. When did he pass away? Do you remember that about that? Uh, I know he came to a couple of play of the year nights in the 90s, so it was around that particular period. Right, right. I can't remember the exact date, but yeah, it was a yeah. sad day when he passed on. So we had two real good goalkeepers, didn't we? Jim Saunders and Very and competent Norman goalkeepers, yeah. yes they were actually. And yeah. um, if you got in, you were difficult to shift until you had a bad game. And then the other bloke could come in yeah. and he was difficult yeah, to shift until he'd had a bad yeah. game. You all, know. Got, all got injured. Yeah, yeah all got injured as they, as they did in those yeah. days. This is the Throssel Club with Norman Bartlam and Bob Downing. Now then, recently, of course, you'll all know that uh, England played in Malta and uh, won 4-0, I think. It was a great game. I was there along with many other Albion fans as well. And whilst I was over there, I took the opportunity of looking into some of the links between... West Bromwich Albion and Albion players and Malta. And what, one of the most famous examples is a, a guy called George Shaw who played for the Albion 26-1938 to 1938 and then went across and became manager over there with a team called Floriana. And he actually brought the team over to England after the war in 1951 to play in the game, the, the, the Festival of Britain. Now, George Shaw, I think you, you've got the card, as you have as well, I think, John, haven't yeah. you? The, the famous Topical Times card, which is like the full-length uh, picture, picture card cab- of him, isn't it? Cabinet pictures. Cabinet pictures, yeah. yeah. So he's quite well known by that, by uh, Albion collectors. And uh, you, by remarkable chance, you had a, a visitor on one of your tours. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Knew a little bit about George Shaw, didn't you? I mean, a couple of things about George as well. He was the, the full-back in the 31 double-winning side and he played for England against Scotland uh, in 1931 at Wembley with uh, with Darrell Pearson and they were the first two Albion players to play for England at Wembley. But yeah, uh, when Roy Hodgson was manager, I had a call from the club to say that he'd got a friend who was bringing a tour in Maltese schoolboy side over. One year they play in England in Coventry and the following year they go back to Malta. So this bloke was a friend of Roy Hodgson and they asked me if I could do a tour of the ground, which I promptly did. And knowing they were from Malta, obviously, I took a copy of the Floriana programme, which is a lovely little programme if you can get hold of it, and showed it to them and talked about George Shaw, at which point one of the little lads went running off, got on his mobile phone, came back, had a quick word with the coach who pulled me over and said, you ain't going to believe this. And I said, what's that? And he said, there are only three... Families in Malta with the surname Shaw. This little lad is a Shaw and he's just rung home and discovered that his great uncle was actually George Shaw. So football's a, a great 
medium for the global yeah. game. Yeah. And and showing him his great uncle's name on the honours board at the album, which you will know is in the East yeah. Stand, it was uh, it was remarkable. Yeah, that, that's that's great. So we went looking for evidence of George Shaw, and the club Floriana still exists. But uh, we just, as we discovered, uh, there's not much left of the ground now. So uh, I went on this little mission to try and find out about Floriana with a good mate of mine who, who came across, big Albion fan, Alistair Middleton. And this is what we found out. We just moved a few yards, really, out of the centre of Valletta. And we've come to, which disappointingly, is just a small little football pitch and a car park. This looks as though it used to be sort of football pitch size, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the right size, definitely the right size. And with a little football pitch next to it, you can tell there's some sort of football link here, can't you? Yeah, uh, unfortunately that's all there is that's left of this famous stadium where George Shaw, the former Albion player, was the manager in just post-war periods and he was a really successful manager. Now, the, the Albion signed him in 1926 from Huddersfield Town and it was something like £4,100, which, which is a transfer record then for Huddersfield Yep, and uh, straight away we got relegated in his first season. Yeah, we're, we're looking at the positive, Al. Yeah, looking at the I positive. But after that, he was more successful, wasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> I think we've had a few players that have been record signings and got us relegated later. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And he, he, he actually played once for England as well in 1932, but we won that one, didn't we? Yeah, 3 0 against Scotland. Which is excellent. Yeah. In, in that, that game, Harold Pearson, the famous Albion goalkeeper, uh, played in that game as well and that was his debut and again that was his only cap as well and Teddy Sanford another well-known Albion player was reserved there there's a brilliant player called Tom Pongo Waring who played for Aston Villa and uh, he scored the only goal in, the, in that particular game. But George was good enough to win the cup final medal in 1931 and he also played in the 1935 final although he was minus his teeth wasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, apparently so. He, um, he wore them for meeting of the royalty and took them out just as he started playing, threw them behind the goal line, and apparently one of the goals, when Sheffield Wednesday scored, it rolled across, hit the teeth and came back out again. But it was a goal, yeah. yeah. So he was certainly a player that got his teeth into the action. Yeah, definitely. Well done, Norm. <laughs> Not quite sure why he decided to come to, to Malta in 1948 and he was there until about 1951 and during that time he won the FA Trophy, he was in their Golden Jubilee season as well and he also uh, went on to win some of the other Cups and the Championship all in his uh, their best ever season that they had. We're actually standing looking over the five-a-side pitch and we've got what can best be described as uh, a make believe standing because I'm little wooden pallets for people to sit on in there's, there's a little bit of wood above us and some scaffolding to, for the little shelter there's a couple of fans down here so all the official matches of uh, Malta happen either in the National Stadium or the, the Paula Stadium as well um, now we got this five five side pitch here for, for the youngsters to play to play and train at now, just across the town, just by the little church, just slightly up the hill, we're walking up there now, there's this magnificent building. Nice little green door and a, a club badge. So, let's go in and have a look. We're standing now in a marvellous room, full of trophies, cabinets and pennants, and, of course, as you'd expect, there's a big West Bromwich Albion pennant, which is quite quite prominent here. And there's loads of team photos around. George Shaw was on a couple of them from the 19, early 1950s as well. And the man who's shown us around is called... Kenny. 
Kenny Roberts. Roberts. What, what's your job then, Kenny? Um, here we are, I'm part of the FFC media, um, but I always um, love to, to, to read and learn about, about um, the history of our club. Yeah, right, that's brilliant. Right, so Kenny's going to show us around and point out some of the things with an Albion connection. From 1948-49, season 1948-49, 49-50, 50-51, 52-51, 53-53, um, Floriana Football Club have won um, uh, the title four years in a row and uh, this record is still on hold by the club um, in Maltese football since no other team have, be, have won um, four consecutive championships in a row. Um, uh, in one of, in, one of uh, in some of occasions, um, George Shaw was uh, the coach of the club. These are one, two, three, four the four um, championships won in a row. These are the trophies? Oh, yes, these those are the actual the, trophies. Those are the trophies, um, which are the same. Yeah, absolutely and, oh, brilliant. Definitely one of them, um, Giorgio, has, has, has been part of it. We've got a huge cabinet in front of us here, and one of the prominent pennants up there is West Bromwich Albion. Yes, West Bromwich Albion there, Festival of Britain. Florinia came across to Britain and played uh, three games. They made football history because they were the first Maltese team to play in Britain. They played three games, I think, didn't they? The Albion beat them 2-0, uh, but they played a couple of other games, didn't they? Yeah, they also lost 5-1 to Chelsea and 5-0 to Doncaster Rovers. The Albion won 2-0. The great Ray Barlow scored one of the goals. And the Argus at the time said Albion's finishing and their goalkeeper was so bad yeah, so good rather that he made 10 really good saves to keep the score down to 2-0. And in that, that game, it's the famous Albion defender Stuart Williams. That was his first team debut for that particular game in May 1951. What, what happened to the stadium? After the Millennium celebrations, the stadium was closed? Of Floriana. Of Floriana. Uh, it was closed because it couldn't be, it couldn't be um, utilised as a as as a pitch to play on, um, the ground was obviously made made several um, in bad conditions. Bad conditions, bad yes, conditions. bad conditions. Yeah. Um, so it couldn't be be much more. Now we are hoping we are still waiting um, for all the permits to being um, uh, given to the to the club so they can start the process of um, the project which, which, which the club has in, has in mind. So is, that, is the idea to reopen again on the same where the car park is? Yes, yes, that's, 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 that's the idea. Right, so uh, thanks very much there to Kenny at, at the, the club and that's a, a really good contact that we've got there. He's a man who's really into the history of his club and uh, wish him and his team Floriana all the best for the season. Now we'll be talking a little bit more about Maltese connections later in the programme. Now, Alistair Lou was there with us on that, that trip. He's a, a good mate of mine from over the years. And football comradeship and being around with your mates is part of what football's all, all about. And uh, ten years ago, a good mate of ours called Richie Brentnell, who had moved across to Spain, unfortunately he passed away uh, over there. And every year since, a certain group of Albion fans have been across to sort of commemorate him and uh, raise a glass to him, really. And uh, 
I think you, you knew Richard, didn't you? Yeah, John? yeah, I knew Richie, yeah. Basically, from when I started going away in the early 70s, when I was 13, 14, wherever you went, Richie Bentle was there, wasn't he? And, uh, you know, he was the, the larger-than-life character. Got that book, a jaw, something jaw. Did you journey around the world? Yeah. Top stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got that book on my bookshelf, and he, he was a he was a great character and a, and a wonderful throstle, basically, and a good drinker as well, I believe. Uh, he was a good yeah. drinker, and this this <laughs> nicely leads us on to this little piece that I I recorded when we were in Spain. It started off when everybody was sober, but uh, deteriorated towards the end a bit, so I haven't included I haven't included that uh, in in this little piece. But it, it's a nice feature, really, bringing together all that different comradeship of uh, being an Albion fan. We're at Tahiti Bar, right on the seafront at Fungarola. So Dean is one of the main organisers here. So what, why, are you, why are we here? It's a, a good friend of ours, Richie Brentnell, quite a well-known Albion fan in his day. He'd actually moved out here and uh, retained his season tickets. He, he was over here for about five years, I think, but still kept his season ticket. And then he sadly uh, had a bit of a tragic accident and passed away. That was in 2013. So every year we all come out, numbers vary, anything between 10 and 25 one year, to basically raise a few glasses for him. And uh, Jeff Waters, another popular Albion fan who used to come with us, who was also planning to come and live here in his retirement, he sadly passed away during the uh, pandemic. So it's a, a bit of a double memorial now for two, two, two top blokes, and um, I think we're doing proud. So the idea is meet up at this bar, then visit other bars around the town. So yeah, we're going to well, go on a bit of a pub crawl. Yeah, sadly, yeah. <laughs> now the, uh, the Tahiti bar, which is uh, where we start, used to be where Richie used to start. Uh, if he didn't make it back to see Albion and Albion were on telly, his, his match day routine was to start at the Tahiti bar at sort of midday and end up watching the game in the London bar further along this front via a few other bars on the way. So it basically we, we did the same as we do the same as what Richie used to do, albeit a few of the bars have gone now. And we're at a bar called Bad Ass, which has got a big donkey with its back heels up in the air as its emblem. You've got can of Fanta, mate. What's going on? Oh, bad night last night, no. <laughs> you've got a stand. You've got standards to keep up to. Everybody looks up to you. You're supposed to be meant to take the drink, mate. What's I, I, happening? I will do my to normal, I promise. It's not good enough, is it, then? No, uh, I, I've known this man for nearly 50 years, and I have to say I'm absolutely stunned, and I've never come out and had a drink with him, and he's drank Fanta Robbins, unless he'd had a sneaky vodka in there, so he's obviously not very well known. The good news is, Norm, it doesn't match your shirt. <laughs> and we're heading for one now, Danny's Bar, otherwise known as Majesty's Bar, and Danny has already got the liquidator playing. He must be expecting us. And there's about 11 of us here, and between us, I reckon we must have about getting on for 700 years combined experience of supporting Albion here. What do you reckon? Oh, probably not as much as that, in all fairness, Norman, unless obviously you're counting your obviously age, <laughs> and we've probably got 800. But yes, you're quite right, and it's really nice to spend some time with well, friends and like minded friends, to be honest with you, and get away from the, the you know, 
tales of normal life, to be honest with you. This is an absolute bonus for me, and I'm having a whale of a time. No, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. The, the best part for me is um, when you have a few drinks, everybody just starts telling their stories, and you start kind of listening to people talking about 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and it's amazing. And there's one common bond, isn't it? The common bond is the Albion. It's amazing. And we're coming on down now towards the old London bar with the sea away to the right, the sun glistening off the the waves and already there's a, a lot of people out on the sunbeds but we've got no time for sunbeds because the next point is ready but looking around the place here the whole place is full of flags it's mainly Manchester United and Liverpool flags but right above the main TV it's the big Albion flag isn't it it is because that, that's where the, the pair of them used to watch the Albion game. Sometimes if they, if they didn't come to England to watch it, they'd watch it in the old London bar. And in fact, on the, on the television screen there in the corner is a photo of Jeff and Richie with the flag above the screen. That's just astonishing. Just shows out what people around here must have thought about both of them, really. Well, they're both characters, weren't they? Particularly uh, Richie was very uh, larger than life, as they say. What does it mean to you to be sort of part of a group of Albion fans? It's great. All my mates, everybody from everybody from home. It's just it's just a fabulous day, and I look forward forward to it. Yeah, and all, all year round. Everybody you're with, they're all they're all of the same. Uh, you know, they're, they're all like the same thing, and uh, you know, we all we all realists. We know we're not never going to win the the Champions League, but uh, it's it's just great to be around like-minded people. And it's kind of. Although we come to memorialise them, we come and we have a really good crack, loads of mates together, meet loads of people, um, and it's it's a great experience. I love to come down and see old mates. Uh, remember two friends, unfortunately, they've passed away. Uh, meet Sylv, we only bump into once a year, fortunately, but we have a great time. It's great to see everybody and look forward to next year. My son would love this, to be honest with you, but I hope he has people he can come in 40 years' time and enjoy it with those people that he's mixing with now, like we're being able to do ourselves. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that trip and enjoyed putting that little piece together as well, all about comradeship, uh, what it's like being an Albion fan with, with your mates out and about. Now, talking about being out and about, we're going back to Malta again. And there's a good Albion fan over in Malta called Conrad. And uh, he co-produces and edits the Look Back In Albion uh, Facebook page, which is exceptionally good. And Conrad was born over there in Malta and has been an Albion fan all his life. And uh, I spoke to him about some of the other Albion connections over there. Beginning with Brian Talbot, who, as many people will know, is Albion manager in the WOKING era. And uh, this is what he had to say about him. And also some surprising other names of ex-Albion players that have played in Malta. I know that you already mentioned George Shaw, and that is the most famous example. We've had Brian Talbot actually manage here, not play here, manage here. In 1993, um, the story with Brian Talbot is that um, after I think it was Aldershot where he was a player manager, he came. He ended up coming to Malta as a manager, 
by um, employed by a club called Hibernians, like the Scottish Hibernian but with an S, and uh, basically he won two back-to-back -back leagues. Now he was a big success here, but he was helped by the the fact that he had two foreigners. I remember at the time with Hibernians um, called a Danish guy called Kazakow who was scoring goals freely and George Lawrence played for Bournemouth, Southampton and he was a winger um, and he came he came by chance to Malta he came with another club slimmer but they didn't offer him a contract and literally George Lawrence was I would say the Maltese John Barnes literally he excelled and Zaka was scoring freely goals freely and suddenly, Hibernians won two back-to-back -back titles. Um, Brian remained for a few more years in Malta. He once was, I have to mention that in his first season here, he was actually um, interviewed and met the Malta Supporters Club and gave a bit of background of what happened to him at the Albion, including that, <laughs> that uh, Stuart, for those who remember, that Stuart Pearson was actually not the most loyal of assistants. But anyway, um, but he, he was very complimentary of John Silk, but not. I miss this, by the way, because there was a Valentine's party at sixth form and I fancied my chances as a 17, 18 year old. I had to choose between Brian Talbot and Valentine's Day at sixth form. Um, and I regret it to this day that I, I, never, I never met, uh, I never met uh, Brian Talbot in person. I've seen Brian Talbot running, jogging, um, in Slima, but I never met him in person. He later on left, went for a few clubs, I think Oxford and Oldham and Rushden and Diamonds. Um, uh, but he came back, he managed Massa Schlock, which is the equivalent of Bournemouth, winning the Premier League. He took Massa Schlock to win the Premier League, a, a, a fishing village, actually, uh, which was actually. Um, well-funded, let's say that, because in Malta you need to have an owner who, who, who actually funds the club well and so forth. Um, the idea, the, the, the way clubs are, are run here is very much like in Spain, where you have the president and he is, runs the show. And in fact, Brian Talbot used to say that it worked for him because he only had to refer to one person rather than a whole board, um, like it was at the Albion at the time, the whole board of directors. Um, Apart from that, we had some ex-players. We had Tony Morley, who only played one game and a league game and another game um, against Real Valladolid um, in the Cup Winners' Cup. And Tony Morley, actually, in this game, this away game where his, his, the team, Hamrun Spartans, lost 5-0, changed his shoes five or six times. And I remember years after, I, asked, I came across him and asked him, why did you do that? He said, because they didn't have a shoe that fitted my own foot size. So I, I was being given different types of boots and, I, and they were give, giving me hell. But anyway, um, Peter Barnes played for a while, for six months, um, seven games. And he used to fly in four games. Um, years after Mark Briggs, some might remember him as an academy and reserve team player, midfielder, um, I think he's in US now, he played for a team called Mostas, the midfielder. Um, Craig beat him 
played a couple of times in Malta with a team called the Boot Rangers, which is a village close to where I live, and they were in the Premier League. And more recently, I think he's still on the, the books, um, Sessignon, Stefan Sessignon, until last season, and probably this season, he's 6, 7, played for Cyrene. Cyrene is the, the, it's more of a water polo club, but the, they, ha, they have a well-oiled, fun, well like funded uh, football club, which is now in the Premier League. It's a club coming from uh, St. Paul's Bay. Um, Stefan Sessignon actually um, plays for them. Uh, I don't think there are other former Albion players who actually played here, to my knowledge, unless I'm missing something. But uh, yes, you know, um, it's it's in, it's interesting that you get these different play, uh, former, how shall I say, great players like Tony Morley and Peter Barnes mm -hmm. um, coming to Malta to play. But we also have players like Paul Mariner also spending a number of years playing in Malta in his mid-30s and being a success for another club. Um, nowadays you get less and less English players. Um, but it will be interesting to see if we get other former um, Albion players in the future here. So there we are. That, that was Conrad. I really enjoyed talking to him. And in fact, we've got loads more from Conrad that we'll use in the future programmes. Some interesting names there, sort of Craig Beatty, Session, Tony Morley, Peter Barnes. You obviously you remember Peter Barnes, Oh, John. yeah, Peter Barnes was signed as the replacement for Lottie Cunningham, wasn't he? An enigmatic character who, on his day, was a, was a brilliant footballer. His father, Ken, was a Brummie, you know, and he was discovered playing for Chester by Manchester City. But Peter, yeah, he, I always remember when he signed for the Albion, he was lodging at the Europa Motel and he got his car parked outside and one morning he got up and somebody had pinched all the alloy wheels off his car. Huh. Uh, the story went out in the local press and the next morning whoever had nicked them brought them back, would you believe? That's the power of the press, yeah, Bob. that's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. what, 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 Give us it? the ammo, we'll produce the goods. That's it. Was he heavy carrying them wheels back then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, yeah. yeah Postscript to Malta, we won 2-0 against Floriana, by the way. Oh, so yeah. we ought to let people know. Indeed, yeah. indeed, indeed. Yep. Right, we're going to return to Lyndon Hughes now to finish off the, the programme. And pe people of the certain age that were there in the 70s will be aware of this story. But it was one of the big medical stories of the uh, mid-1970s, really, or early 1970s. Remember, we had the Asa Hartford in thing, the thing hole in with the, the hole in the which heart. Which was a pinhole, basically, you know, yeah, that day. Yeah, so it wasn't as bad as it, you know, no. it, it may have appeared. And uh, the one about Lyndon Hughes, of course, was his kidney, because he had the kidney removed. And in those days, Bob, I think it could have potentially end, ended somebody's career. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, when he was talking about it, um, it's amazing, really. You know, we got sort of the waiting list now for the national health. I mean, now footballers don't have to wait on the national health; they go, they, it's all done privately. Mm -hmm. But Lyndon, Lyndon actually went to see the doctor, um, was diagnosed with this kidney problem, and the next day he was in hospital having it removed. Blimey! Yeah, so uh, that's let's, quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's have a listen to to Lyndon talking about the the build up and the problems associated with his kidney. Now, your career almost came to a halt, didn't it, with this uh, famous uh, kidney problem that you had. So it, it's something you, you'd had for years, wasn't it? Uh, it was a defect from birth. 
that I'd had problems with during my childhood, but it didn't come to fruition until or, or surface until I was 21. Then I had checks and they found out I had to take it out, but it was all done pretty quickly. I had tests on the day and then took it out the day after, so it had to be done pretty quickly before it became diseased. So uh, the, the prognosis didn't look very good in those days. Uh, but as time went on, and I felt stronger, mm -hmm. and, um, expertise said that it's up to you. And the other drawback from my point of view was I couldn't be insured. Most players are insured um, against injury and finishing the career, but I couldn't be insured because it was my, down to my own risk. Uh -huh. I had to risk, so I was uninsurable. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a bit of a problem, really. So have you been experiencing sort of pain after games and things in the build-up to it? No, very intermittent pain um, in the last day. And I've since found out that if you, what I used to do, I used to go to bed for the, for the day, find the pain, but um, and then you go the next day. Mm. But what I should have done is gone for a run. Hmm. And that'd have been okay. It stops the mm. kidney, only works when you're resting. So if you go and do physical exercise, your kidneys don't work. So I've been told. So how do the other players and management at the Albion deal with that then when you realise you've got to have the operation? Um, no, really, they were shocked because I was one of the fittest, if not the fittest guy at West Brom in terms of speed and endurance. Um, so they were shocked. A bit like Asa Harford, really, with his mm -hmm. holding heart. Here's yeah. another one that was fit. And endurance was, was, was one of the top levels. And he had a hole in the heart, you know, so they were shocked, really. So something that happens and something you've got to get on with. Mm -hmm. In terms of the press coverage, there wasn't loads of coverage. It was the bubble like, like today. It would be big headlines, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember it, obviously. Um, and, well, I mean, like everybody else, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a big shock to everybody. But remember... Um, John Wiles column in the Sports Argus, he mentioned it in, and he said then, you know, how, how upset and how shocked the rest of the squad were that Lyndon, who's got, you know, sort of, was a tremendous sort of uh, athlete in his own right, um, had, had got to have a kidney removed. I mean, this was 1972. And, and you know, it, it was, it, it, with Lyndon, it, it sort of, I think, as you said, you, you diagnose the one day you're in the hospital the next. So it wasn't a prolonged thing. And then the the biggest thing then that we were monitoring, obviously, when he when he came out of hospital and his progress from then on. And it was amazing, really, that you know that after having the sort of sort of the kidney operation, um, you know, he, the way he came back. And, you know, sort of was back playing football and that was testament not only to him, but also to his, his fitness. I had to have 12 months off because they cut all the, the, mm. the muscles at the side and took off all the lower rib yeah. on the side. And then the muscles had to heal. And it took a good 12 months for them to heal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had to have 12 months off. Then it came back as a normal pre-season the next day. Next, That's next right, yeah. 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 I, I just can't imagine what you must have felt like at the time when you realised you'd got out of the operation. Yeah, yeah, it was a big shock. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you'd yeah. obviously got the determination to persevere. No choice. Yeah. Get on with it. Play the cards you don't. That's what you can do. Mm.
So what kind of help did you have for your restoration afterwards? Were you sort you, of you by, by yourself off. in your 12 months? Just a bit of light training I did. But couldn't do too much because the muscles had to heal, so I couldn't do a fat lot. I just rested up really. Yeah. Mm. Didn't do much for 12 months. And then I gradually built, towards the end of that 12 months, I started to build up training to the fully fit again. Yeah. But just rest really, rest and recuperation. Time, time heals a lot of things. Yeah, so it's, it's quite sad there, but uh, fantastic, isn't it, Bob? That they had the, the pluck and the courage and the determination to overcome yeah, the kidney problem. Yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, at the time as well. I mean, you've only got to read some of the the press cuttings from the time, and you know, a lot of times, you know, people were doing stories in the in the Argus. You know, the players, and they're always saying, you know, we just want to wish Lyndon Hughes the best. Yeah. Um, and you know, they, they did think a lot of him, and I know. Um, a lot of the the, uh, the staff thought a lot of him as well. Yeah, we'll be talking more about Lyndon and to Lyndon and hearing from Lyndon in future programmes. So thanks for inviting us around to see you, uh, Lyndon, uh, when we came around to see you last week. Now, a couple of minutes left in the, in the programme because unfortunately, John, Billy only gives us an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you had to speak to Dave, he's the boss. Just, a, just an introduction for me. You can have as long as possible. <laughs> So you do a lot of work at the Albion with Dementia Awareness and the Albion Hub and the Albion Foundation, don't you? Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that started about 13 years ago with Edward Street Hospital, the therapy and recovery unit, where they asked me in to see if I could do sessions, Albion memory sessions for patients uh, with Alzheimer's and dementia. And although I was a bit apprehensive to start with, it's turned into a very, very rewarding uh, exercise uh, every Wednesday now. Uh, for the last 13 years, uh, well, the last few years, it's been held at the media suite at the Albion. And we get patients along who are consultant referred. And uh, the consultant believes that it does uh, does help them along the way. And it does because it helps them to bring back memories that they think they forgot. And we get former players there and personalities, radio personalities, uh, people like Bob, ex-journalists. Uh, and it, it's, uh, as I say, it, it's a couple of hours on a Wednesday afternoon. And it really is um, tremendous. And I'm really, really grateful and, uh, and uh, to all the people who helped me along with this, uh, with the foundation as well, and to all the guests. And I have to say, it really is a privilege to deal with these people because they're so... Uh, <laughs> their experiences, you know, they, they give you a different angle on life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's wonderful. It, it really is good seeing people come alive because people in the later stage of the dementia often go a little bit quiet and a little bit withdrawn absolutely and uh, you can s see them coming to life again as it yeah, were yeah. as their, their past is unfolding my, my funniest story that was the chap i used to i said to him once what did you do in the 50s 60s 70s when the album were great so I'd, he said oh i used to get the bus from the Hawthorns, go into west brom have a bag of fish and chips, go and see a film and then have a pint in the Stone Cross. And I said, you do realise between 1986 and 1992, you never had a pint, you never went to the pictures and you never had any fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> and he remembered that well. <laughs> yeah, that, that's brilliant. Right, thanks uh, very much for that. I hope you enjoy that, John. Absolutely. Boston, as they say. Boston, as they say. And, and, of course, yourself, Bob. 
Yeah, great. Thanks, Norm. It's been really interesting again. Of course, I'm miffed at the result of the quiz, you know what I mean? But there you go. <laughs> well, well, I blame the question master and me myself. You, you know what it's like. Right, so there, there we are. That's uh, all we've got time for today on the Thwassel Club. Thanks very much for being with us and joining us next yeah. month. Keep out the Oss Road. This is the Thwassel Club with Norman Bartlam and Bob Downing.